On today's episode, presidential candidate John Hickenlooper answers questions on climate, education, and much more. Go on, what Columbia looks like! This is what Columbia looks like! Published since 1973. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. This is Chronicle Headlines. The race for the Democratic nomination is well underway, with 25 candidates hoping to be selected. The Democratic pool is so large, it's bigger than some class sizes at Columbia College, Chicago. Today, we have one of the many candidates, former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. He's also spent time as mayor of Denver, and in his political career, Hickenlooper has fought to reduce methane emissions, instituted police reform, and helped create the Denver Scholarship Program. Our news editor, Alexandra Yetter, will ask the first question. So you're a huge advocate for fighting the, the climate crisis. You've advocated for rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, implementing a carbon tax, and investing in green infrastructure programs. And in, in Colorado, you signed numerous green bills. Um, but you said that the Green New Deal wouldn't work. Can you explain why that is? Well, I thought the problem with the Green New Deal was the, there were distractions in it. Promises of a government job for every American I share the urgency and the sense that, you know, within 10 or 12 years, we risk irreversible damage to, to the earth of devastating consequences. I share the goal that we have to, by 2050 at the latest, get to a carbon-free economy. But I just thought the Green New Deal, it's got these, everything else in it. That, I mean, a, a, a promise for every American to have a government job who wanted it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that would get through Congress. I don't th- even if it did, I think it would get tied up in court. And I, you know, if we're serious about climate change, we got to be laser focused. Mm-hmm. So it was more the second half that sort of. Yeah. Okay, I understand. So um, obviously, when we're discussing climate change and the climate crisis, you're putting some restrictions on industries like oil and coal. So what would you do for people who did lose their jobs consequently? <clears throat> well, I think that. What we've been able to do repeatedly in Colorado, and I think it's not hard to do it nationally, there are so many more jobs being created in the green economy than than are being lost Mm -hmm. at a coal-fired electrical generation plant, for example. So there's lots of, I mean, there's boatloads of jobs. We just have to make sure that the people who maybe work in a coal-fired plant or work in a coal mine, that that we take the skills they have Mm -hmm. and then look at what, the, the emerging professions are. In other words, we don't just want to get them a job. We want to get them a job that will lead to a better job. But to do that, I think we should be looking at what are the groups of skills that they have and what what other professions might provide similar, you know, a requirement for a similar uh, combination of skills. And then how do we make sure we train those workers if they're missing a couple skills mm-hmm. so that they can be successful in their new profession? Mm-hmm. And would you do that anyway with legislation if you were elected? Yeah, I think... Again, in Colorado, we started with apprenticeship programs. Mm-hmm. Our apprenticeship program is it's not for electricians. I mean, it's not just for electricians and plumbers. Kids go to work in a bank or an insurance company or a hospital, mm-hmm. advanced manufacturing, clean energy. Uh, they go to work two days a week, and then they go to school three days a week. And then mm-hmm. the next year, they work, instead of two days, they work three days. The third year, they'll work four or five days. This is a way to get those skills into every kid when you start. And... It provides the base for the 
the workers in carbon industries mm -hmm. to really transition. In other words, and, and I'm not saying they have to go back and be an apprentice, but it allows us to, to begin looking at the, the, the types of skills that we need to transfer to you know, uh, uh, someone working in a coal-fired plant. I mean, that, that kind of an industrial activity. There's, it's amazing how many skills those people have mm -hmm. and have to have these days for almost all those jobs. Let's get them back into a different job. And whether that requires legislation or not, you know, I think that can be done through rulemaking. You know, the Department of Labor has a wide latitude. But my, my sense is that this is the type of thing that would be so bipartisan that you could easily do legislation if you really wanted to expand the scale and the funding. Do you look at climate change and the climate crisis as a bipartisan issue? Absolutely. I don't think we're gonna we're really gonna solve it, and at, at the with the urgency we need if we can't get not all the Republicans, but we've got to get a bunch of Republicans on board too. And I think increasingly we see Republicans care about this. And mm -hmm. I mean, not everyone's gonna deny the basic facts of science. Mm -hmm. And then tackling the climate crisis is an expensive task. You've proposed raising $100 billion a year in climate financing to help with foreign countries to um, put climate crisis into their developing countries. Solutions for that, $200 billion into the transportation system for renewable energy sources and $150 billion to upgrade the electric grid system, just to name a few. Um, so where exactly would this money be coming from? Well, in each case, there's different sources. Mm -hmm. So when you upgrade the grid, I mean, right now, the 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 ratepayers. I mean, you're talking about everybody. So the actual cost to ratepayers is very small to make sure you have a reliable grid. And if you ask almost anyone, they're going to say, "Yeah, I'm willing to pay an extra two bucks or four bucks a month on my electric bill to make sure that we're not going to have a a brownout or a blackout." Uh, things like uh, making sure that that foreign countries are able to address climate change rapidly. I mean, that becomes part of our economic development. So there's a large amount of resources that are already dedicated to investing, mm -hmm. uh, trying to create stronger economies in developing nations. There's absolutely no reason why those investments shouldn't be green in nature and be part of, a, of an overall sphere of, of you know, dramatically diminishing the amount of carbons generated in their economies. So mm -hmm. in each case, there's a way within a whole system of not... I'm not sure you need as much new money as what everyone worries, worries about. Mm -hmm. And would you also instate a carbon tax? Yeah, but I think it, Mike says I call it a carbon fee. Mm -hmm. And I think at least to start, we should say whatever the fee is, we'll refund that to all taxpayers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just on a per person basis. Mm -hmm. And I think that allows people to not become uh, so aggravated at government, which is what, you know, that's what the Republicans have been, they've been. When we start trying to do large efforts to combat climate change, they attack us as, you know, you're just trying to raise more tax money and that's not going to help me any why do, you, why do you do that. My point is, I think we can do an awful lot of this stuff without, you know, enormous tax increases. Mm -hmm. And then in Oregon, there was this incident with Republicans fleeing the state to avoid the cap-and-trade bill. Um, and I'm curious if you... Uh, are, have any interest in cap-and-trade and whether you would look into implementing that on a federal level? Well, you know, whether you do a uh, a, a, a tax or a, div or a fee with mm -hmm. a dividend, whether you do cap-and-trade, in, in either case, it's just there are different techniques of putting a, a, a value on the importance of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And Without that kind of a system, 
you're going to have a hard time developing some of the new innovations like carbon capture, which I think, you know, if you're going to be honest about addressing climate change, carbon capture is probably going to have to be there, right? Mm -hmm. People don't like to hear it. I mean, same thing with, with nuclear. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I protested against nuclear energy day in and day out because I felt that, you know, having that waste without knowing exactly where it was going to be stored and how it was going to be stored was, was too risky. Mm -hmm. Well, now, if you're going to be honest and look at the reality of the situation, it's a far greater risk that we let climate change continue unaddressed. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd rather have that nuclear waste where we know where it is and we know how to deal with it. And we've seen the problems we saw, you know, we've seen the problems of Fukuyama or Three Mile Island. And, and we can design this next generation of nuclear plants to be dramatically safer, mm -hmm. right? And again, I'm not sure without it, you're, you're actually going to be able to get to the goals that we set out for it. And again, I, I want a lot of study around nuclear before I start waving my arms and saying, we gotta go this, this direction. Mm -hmm. But it's gotta be one of the options we consider. You mentioned protesting as a child for climate change. There used to be a thing called the nuclear freeze movement. Mm -hmm. What is it like seeing these millions of kids globally protest climate change like Greta Thunberg? You know, I, I think it's great. I think mm -hmm. it's healthy. I, I, I love the protest that, you know, sometimes the angry demonstrations and the, you know, the destruction is a problem. And I, again, I'm old enough to remember when we protested uh, uh, for environmental protection, we protested to end the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. This is in the late 60s, the early 1970s. You know, we closed down. I mean, there are lots of kids that I knew that were part of uh, closing down campuses mm -hmm. and having teach-ins and sit-ins on how do we combat uh, nuclear energy? How do we combat this? How do we get ourselves out of Vietnam, uh, out of the Vietnam War? All these things. And, but those protests often became very violent and, 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 and filled with anger and division. And it's always, I always tell people just to remember that in 1972, you know, Richard Nixon Honestly, you know, I mean, legitimately the most corrupt president that we've had, at least up until the present president, mm -hmm. uh, he won in 1972 the largest, most resounding landslide in, in American history up until that point. Mm -hmm. And so protests are very valuable, important, but I think when, when they become angry and driven by uh, violence, mm -hmm. they often uh, push people away from the cause in which they're, you know, which they're trying to recruit people. And then obviously climate change is, again, a huge issue for young voters specifically. And many people are calling for a climate debate, a two-hour debate devoted solely to the issue of climate change. And I'm wondering if you support that idea and if one were to occur, would you, are, would you participate? Sure. I have no problem. I mean, I've got a master's in geology. Right? I'm the, the one person running who I think has personally spent a huge amount of time there are a couple other people that are also mm -hmm. i think legitimately could claim expertise in this but it's something that i have spent a lot of time you know really soul searching and, mm -hmm. and this whole thing about nuclear you know nuclear waste and how how would we get to a, a nuclear being part of a solution what would it take and mm -hmm. what would the cost be those are issues i mean some of the things we don't have solutions for like heavy industry right when we make concrete as it cures, as it sets, it exhales a large amount of CO2. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of the, you know, one of the most significant sources of CO2 in the world. Right now, no one's doing serious, really serious research on how do we create a new kind of concrete that doesn't exhale CO2. I'm sure we can do it, 
but it hasn't been a priority yet. My question is, why not? Mm -hmm. And with your commitment to this issue, would you like there to be that debate? Sure. No, I think I think the debate needs to happen because uh, there are too many people in this country that you know the people that we call deniers that have a in many cases a financial benefit by saying there's no such thing as climate change or it's grossly exaggerated. First they said there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. And then over the last few years, against overwhelming scientific data, they sort of said, well, it's nothing we can do anything about or it's other causes than mankind's activity. Mm -hmm. You know, we can quibble around the, the fringes, but if the deniers are out there spreading this, this poison of misinformation, I think a debate would help bring attention to the to the real facts. Mm -hmm. Then other than a debate specifically, how would you combat people giving misinformation? Well, it depends on whether they have a self-interest. So somebody who's just misinformed and, and ignorant, which I find is, I think is regrettable. And I, you know, uh, I think correcting and getting, make sure people have the, the same set of facts is, a, is essential as a first step. But for too long, the people that have been funding you know, the deniers uh, have a huge financial interest in in carbon industries, whether it's coal uh, or like the Koch brothers or whether it's a uh, uh, oil and gas companies. I mean, ExxonMobil up until just a few years ago was a huge denier. Well, they had a self-interest in perpetuating oil consumption and natural gas consumption as long as they can. I look at that and say, you know, shouldn't there be some consequence? If they're making money by denying it, if it turns out that they were wrong and that they put us at risk, shouldn't there be some consequence there? Mm -hmm. What kind of consequence do you propose? Uh, I don't know. I think, we, but but if if con if companies are not willing to be part of the solution and they have information that demonstrates that they knew there was huge risk and yet they were funding, you know, disinformation, mm -hmm. there should be some penalty there, and certainly. The thing I'd like to see that would convince me that wasn't the case, why, why aren't the, uh, all the different oil companies and, and you know, the, the, the industry out there get, taking the real facts and paying for a PR campaign, making sure that everyone does understand that the deniers were not speaking truthfully, right? We're not accurately reflecting and presenting the facts as we know them. And I think that's the responsibility of the oil and gas industry as much as it is, uh, you know, the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And then you've also called for a Climate Corps program, which would create scholarships and loan forgiveness for college students studying in, in green fields. Um, can you expand on what effect you hope that funding this program would have on the climate crisis and education? Well, we just need a lot more uh propulsion. <laughs> you know, we need more intellectual rigor to begin creating some of these these innovations that we need to you know, begin reducing the amount of carbon that we've got in our atmosphere. Uh, yet if you I mean the the basic greenhouse theory, right? This high this high carbon actually creates a internal reflections that make a system heat up more rapidly than it otherwise would. I mean, that should be very concerning, and it presents a whole array of different problems that we haven't studied enough. Mm -hmm. So we got to get more kids learning to be scientists, but also more kids working at, you know, part of our solution has to be making sure we have more effective and more efficient buildings. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to need a whole army of, of workers to make sure we retrofit 
commercial buildings, residential buildings, but begin looking at every place where we can possibly uh, be more efficient and, and, and burn less carbon. Mm. Do you think college campuses also have a part to play in that? You mentioned making buildings green. Absolutely. I think carbon ca- carbon ca- uh, college campuses mm. are where carbon issues should be front and center, and they always have been. Uh, I mean, that's where the new ideas generally come from, is from young people on college campuses where mm. they sometimes have a little too much time on their hand and they come <laughs> up with these brilliant ideas. Uh, I look, you know, some of the stuff when I was mayor in 2000, um, for 2005, we, we had a plan, uh, and we got, I think, about halfway there to, to uh, within 20 years, plant a million trees. And the idea was a, a tree not only sucks carbon out of the air, mm-hmm. you know, as a tree grows, if you look at a, a giant oak tree, there's no big dip in the ground around that oak tree, right? I, I you know, when I was a kid, I always thought, well, why, how, where'd all that wood come from? You know, how come there's not a big kind of a swallow, a, a swale mm-hmm. in where that giant oak tree is? Well, it's because the water comes out of the ground, goes out to the leaves, and the leaves take CO2 out of the air and turn that into carbohydrates, which become the wood pulp. Who knew? I mean, what a, what a miracle of, of balance for our life. Well, anyway, we wanted to pl- plant a million trees that not only would take the CO2 out of the air, but would also provide shade so people would use less electricity for air conditioning. Right? So we were uh, subsidizing for low-income homes uh, shade trees on the south side of these homes, mm-hmm. uh, on people's streets where they uh, park their cars. We want shade trees along the streets so that when you get in your car, it's not raging hot. You don't immediately have to turn on your air conditioning. And those, you know, when it's, when it's not the, I mean, in the high heat of the summer, everyone turns their, their air conditioning on. But in the spring and the fall, we should drive with less air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And this mention of trees, it reminds me of this article I saw um, stating that if we plant something like six trillion trees, it can offset the carbon um, gas emissions. Did you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I didn't know it was six trillion. I, I, I knew <laughs> that as one city, the Denver was one city, um, and that we wanted to do our share. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in doing that share, we felt that if we did it, other cities would do it. Mm-hmm. It just makes so much sense. And plus, trees are beautiful. I mean, what's, where's the downside? We actually got the, the metro real estate brokers in Denver. Usually when you, when you sell a house to a family and they move into that house, and if you're the real estate broker, you get a big commission. So you usually give them like a $150 gift certificate or a $200 gift certificate for a really fancy restaurant. We got a discount from the local nurseries and they would give them a little tree they could plant on the south side of their home with a little kind of a little uh, brass label mm-hmm. that would say this tree donated to the you know the Juarez family by their broker you know uh, Jimmy Candeli and you know thank you for the business mm-hmm. or whatever so that when they sell the house they see that tree and they go you know I'm going to call him and, and let him sell the tree sell sell the house with this tree by that time much you know grown to a much larger tree people loved it mm-hmm. I mean the, those are the kind of little things you just gotta we we gotta have a million different innovations like that if we're, if we're going to succeed against climate change. Mm-hmm. And then shifting gears a little bit to education, um, a lot of Democratic candidates are calling to make college more affordable, a few saying that college should be free. Within your education plan, how are you going to make college affordable and what are you going to do for students who don't want to go to college? Well, I've, I mean, let's be honest about the kids who don't want to go to college. Roughly two-thirds of our kids, and this has been true for decades, aren't going to get a four-year degree, don't want to, wouldn't enjoy it, uh, wouldn't benefit as much from it. Uh, And I think we've forgotten 
you know, we've 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 left them behind and left them out. In many cases, we've, without necessarily saying so, but we've rele relegated them to being second-class citizens because you didn't go to college. What nonsense! So that's part of what our apprenticeship I was describing earlier, our mm -hmm. apprenticeship program addresses, but also uh, looking at uh, as kids go through their entire life, how do we um, uh, how do we make sure that they collect uh, the skills that they're going to need uh, to be prepared for the new types of jobs we have. So, I mean, automation, artificial intelligence, these things are going to require, they're going to create whole new professions with all new skills. And we've got to make sure that, uh, that we have a whole generation that have those skills and can fill those jobs. Right now, we've got like 7.5 million jobs unfilled, job openings mm -hmm. unfilled, and only 6.3 million people looking. That's never, I mean, we don't have enough people looking, even if they, they all had the right skills, but they don't. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do on that. So I think, A, you've got to look at, and you asked first about how to keep, create, make college affordable. And we can only do that through public universities. Mm -hmm. And the only way that's ever happened is by being able to put more money into public education. Uh, and that's either going to take new tax resources or finding savings in other places like healthcare. Largely, if you go back to, I think it's about 1980s when we started putting more and more state money uh, ended up going into healthcare, and that's when pe the state stopped investing as, uh, in as high levels in higher education, mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason why tuition's gone up so high. Mm -hmm. And then obviously you, you touched a little bit about bipartisanship, but I did want to mention um, the Senate. And do you think it is a priority for not just yourself, but other Democratic candidates to be focusing on these Senate races while campaigning? Yeah. I mean, I think we've got to beat the Senate. I mean, Mitch McConnell, let's, let's be very blunt. Mitch McConnell, soon after Barack Obama was elected, said he would do everything in his power to make sure that Barack Obama was defeated. Mm -hmm. In essence, he was saying, I'm going to oppose any successful program or anything he might approve that might help get reelected. To me, that verges on treason, treason, right? I mean, he's saying he wants to work against the benefit of, of, of the American Republic. It's, it's hard to imagine. And he has shown no change in heart uh, since then. And I think he's been consistently, um, you know, consistently uh, trying to get in the way of progress. Mm -hmm. uh, when Merrick Garland was proposed by P President Obama to become a member of the Supreme Court, that was, what was it, nine months before the end of the administration, and he wouldn't even give him a hearing? Mm -hmm. I, I've never heard of such a thing. So anyway, yes, I think the Democrats have to take, retake the Senate and bring some semblance of democracy, of our, our, what we think of as our traditional democratic political system, uh, you know, common decency, truth-telling, uh, put that back in place. Would that include um, abolishing the Senate filibuster for you? No, I mean, I think that the filibuster rule plays uh, a role and always has. And in, in, in certain dire circumstances, and that's what we've been going through, for a period of time it goes away, and that's happened before. But ultimately, allowing a filibuster gives certain rights to, you know, the minority, whoever the minority is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that being said... It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's tough. You know, when we've been, as, as Americans, 
people in the Democratic Party have had the political system twisted and used against them. Uh, but again, I still think that, that the traditions of our democracy should be protected as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And then can I ask why you specifically have decided not to run for the Senate instead? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I feel like I was cut out to, to be in executive jobs, right? So I, I started 20 businesses. I created 1,000 jobs when I was an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and small business owner. Uh, then I was the mayor for eight years. And, you know, I think I put together one of the most diverse but one of the most talented staffs in, in you know, big city American history. And, and we were, you know, within, five, within three years, Time Magazine called me one of the top five big city mayors. You know, it worked. And then as governor, you know, I mean, you know, while I was mayor, we we got to universal pre-K. We did the major police reform before ten years before Ferguson. Uh, we passed one of the most ambitious transit initiatives in the history of the country. Got all the suburban mayors to even all the Republicans unanimously supported a tax increase. We did the hard stuff that Washington hasn't been able to get done. And then same thing as with governor. As governor, we got the oil and gas industry to sit down with the environmentalists and really address methane emissions. No one's ever done that. So I look around everyone else running for president, and I think they are almost all more traditional politicians than I am. And I feel like I'm the only one who's actually done what everyone else is talking about. Mm-hmm. So I want to go out there and, 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 you know, at least in the people of Iowa, the people of New Hampshire, people of, of South Carolina, I want to express loudly and clearly, hey, I've done this, right? We, we got to near universal health care coverage. We, we created methane regulations that are now being rolled out as national policy in Canada. You know, we became the number one economy in the country. We beat the NRA with tough new gun laws. We did all this stuff. So everything we did in Colorado can be expanded nationally without a whole lot of twisting and, 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 and turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to make sure that uh, people in Iowa get to hear that there is somebody running and maybe, maybe not the most charismatic and maybe not the greatest orator or funniest you know, joke teller, but someone who's put teams together and done the big progressive things that other people you know, couldn't get done. Mm-hmm. If you had to choose one other candidate to win the Democratic nomination other than yourself, which candidate would it be? Oh, it's hard to say. I haven't even thought about that. I think when you're running in a race like this, you just have to put yourself 100% focused on, on, on your campaign, uh, what you're bringing to the table, uh, without necessarily evaluating uh, everybody else's, uh, you know, who's the strongest of your opponents. I don't, you know, when I ran for mayor in 2003, and I'd never been, I'd never ran for student council. It's the first time I ever ran for anything. And I said I'd never do a negative ad. I still have never done a negative ad. I wouldn't attack my opponents to try and get in the newspaper or get myself on TV. I wanted to, I wanted to create a positive vision of what I thought the future could look like. And I'm, I want to do that again now. And I think the moment I start you know, when, when I'm ready to, to, to give up and, and, and take a whole weekend just sleeping, <laughs> then maybe I'll look at who I think is, is the, the best alternative. Mm-hmm. Right now, I still feel like I'm the one person who's actually could, has done what everyone else talks about. Mm-hmm. And then we also wanted to ask, what's one question that you wish the media would ask you, but they just never do? Um, I guess the... Uh, I guess the question that they, that, that they should be asking everyone is, what are the examples of things you've actually done? Examples where not only have you accomplished progressive achievements, but where did you bring people together that didn't like each other, right? Like Republican and Democratic mayors within a metropolitan area or uh, environmental scientists and 
and oil and gas sci- scientists. And you were able to get them together and spend the months necessary to really create compromises and create, you know, groundbreaking new regulatory frameworks by which we make our our air cleaner and really begin to address climate change. Mm-hmm. The, the media doesn't seem to be asking all the candidates of, you know, what are the examples of bringing people together to, a, to really create real achievement. Mm-hmm. I know you've kind of addressed this in this interview, but are there any examples that you'd like to share with us that you may not have touched on already? Oh, there's tons. I mean... The, when we had a shooting in, in, uh, right after I was elected, before I got inaugurated, uh, in 2003, a young African-American boy named Paul Childs was shot, 15 years old. He was shot in his uh, front hall. Uh, I mean, we reached out to the African-American religious community, the faith-based community, pastors and reverends, and it, I mean, we became partners in negotiating with the police union to make sure we created something called the Civilian Oversight Commission, whereby the community could decide how they wanted their neighborhoods policed. Uh, we created an office of the independent monitor. So the independent monitor had subpoena power. They would go out and be able to investigate any allegation of police brutality or police misconduct. So, uh, so again, giving the community a voice to make sure that, 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 that public safety was enforced in a way that everyone believed. Uh, that was a collaborative effort that, you know, still, if you talk to experts in police reform, you know, our Office of the Independent Monitor, our Civilian Oversight Commission are still models of, of excellence that other states look to. Mm-hmm. And then one last question for you, sort of to round it all out. Can you tell us your favorite memory from college? You know, um, gosh, co- college to me was uh, so exhilarating. In other words, you're with all these people from all over the country, all over the world, uh, and you're kind of immersed in ideas. And I think that it's hard to pick one uh, best memory. I'd I'd say one, there was a a professor, and this will take a couple minutes, but uh, a guy named Alvin Lussier, and he was the professor of electronic music, and he had a terrible stutter, especially if he was embarrassed or felt awkward. He just would really stutter. Uh, And... He did an artistic piece, it was a, a performance, where he took the large, kind of the faculty coffee house and, and invited 100 people to come and sit as the audience. And then he had feedback loops with speakers. So he would start speaking, and two minutes later, what, was, what he'd first started speaking would be recorded, and it would start being broadcast out of another speaker. And then three minutes later, it would be broadcast out of another speaker. And then three minutes later, he's brought, you know, it'd be two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. Anyway, so he started speaking into this microphone, and he's just talking about how hard it was as a child to have a stutter. And, and they described one of the most embarrassing moments in his life where he had, you know, uh, he really liked this girl, and he, he's trying to figure out how to ask her. And then all of a sudden, people came up around him as he was stuttering, and it made him study more, stutter more. As he's telling this story, which took about four or five minutes, the, mic- the, the speakers began broadcasting back the beginning of when he was talking, when he wasn't stuttering that much. But hearing his own words and the occasional stutters mm-hmm. and remembering this emotional moment from his childhood made him stutter more. And so he had to work harder to keep speaking, but he's still stuttering and now stuttering more. And now there are three or four speakers all with his voice and increasingly with more stuttering, which makes him stutter even more. And he got to the point where he's almost in tears and just working as hard as he could and then finally, he hung his head, raised his, raised his head up with this huge smile on his face, and gave a bow. 
and the whole place erupted in applause because he had demonstrated in a very powerful emotional way what his how difficult his life was learning to deal with this this disability wow i love that well thank you so much for being with us governor really a treat uh, enjoyed it thank you so much for having me thank you all for listening to our exclusive interview with presidential candidate john hickenlooper the next democratic debate will be july 30th and 31st